I believe it was Yogi Berra who said, it feels like deja vu all over again. You know that famous Yankees catcher, Yogi Berra? Have you ever had that feeling that you've been somewhere before, that you've heard things before, that you've experienced something, and you're re-experiencing it all over again? If you're a student of scripture, which every Christian is called to be, you know that feeling. That feeling of deja vu all over again, because like a good composer, our Lord weaves certain themes, certain sounds, certain repetitions over and over again, providing little twists, little variations on things, but keeping a consistent pattern again and again and again. This is especially true in the Gospel of Matthew. If you sit down this afternoon and you read through the first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, you will feel like you're experiencing deja vu all over again. There's a man named Joseph who has a dream. There's a baby who's threatened by an evil tyrant, and the tyrant isn't interested in just killing one baby, but he wants to kill them all. God has to call his son out of Egypt. Do you remember these stories? These are the stories that we read back in Genesis, the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. God's son has to pass through the waters and then go out into the wilderness where he faces all sorts of temptations. We've heard that story before. It's the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea, going on a journey, and coming to a mountain. When we read Matthew's gospel, we are experiencing the life of Israel all over again. Except this time, this time there are variations, there are twists. Instead of falling into sin in the wilderness, God's son Jesus conquers the devil's temptations. And what we come to today is what follows next. Now, one of the great things about that experience of deja vu is that you you sort of begin to be able to predict what's going to happen next, right? And so if you're reading scripture or you're experiencing something like this in your own life, you know that after deliverance and a time of testing, you're going to come to a mountain. Israel came to Mount Sinai, and there Moses went up into the cloud and into the darkness, and all the people of Israel heard the Lord speak his commandments. God spoke out of the cloud, and everybody heard it, right? Up till that point, only Moses had heard the Lord, but now all of God's people hear his voice. They hear him thunder from Mount Sinai. And when we come to Matthew's gospel, we hear the voice of God addressing us from the top of a mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, right? From Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, we have, in a sense, Mount Sinai all over again. Except this time, instead of being a cloud and darkness and thunder and lightning, we see the Lord. God has taken on human form, and so we see his face, we hear the human voice of the Lord God of Israel. Jesus speaks from Mount Sinai. And that mountain law, I want you to make sure you note this down, that mountain law is not some kind of a letdown. We need it just as much as Israel did. 
Now, sometimes we get this kind of mixed up, right? We read about the plagues down in Egypt. We read about the great passing through the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, and we think that's the really exciting stuff. And then we come to Mount Sinai and we hear all of this law, (laughs) all of these rules, and we feel like, man, let's go back to the good stuff. Let's go back to the miracles, right? All this instruction, all of this teaching, all of this law feels kind of like a letdown. But just suppose that God didn't give his people his law, right? Suppose that he led Israel out of Egypt, he brought them through the Red Sea, he fed them with water and manna in the wilderness, and they just bypassed Mount Sinai. If God never gave his people his law, what do you suppose would have happened to Israel? We'd never hear of it, would we? Without law, no community can hold together. Imagine a household that has no rules, that has no law. Imagine a nation that is completely lawless. It's impossible to imagine. There is no question. It's not whether there will or will not be a law. There will always be some law, some rule. The question is, whose law is it going to be? So in a family, in a household, the question will often come up, who's really in charge? Is it the kids or is it the parents? (laughs) He said the kids, right? Wrong answer. It's the parents, right? Their law has to prevail or else there will be anarchy, chaos. And the same thing goes for any community, whether we're talking about the community of faith, the church, or we're talking about the nation around us, there will always be some law. The question is, whose law will it be? And I want you to note this well, because I think as Lutherans, we are kind of especially um, maybe prone to having an allergy to God's law. Right? We know, right? We know because we've studied St. Paul's epistles and because it's shot through all of our hymns that the law cannot justify us, right? By the works of the law shall no man be justified. The law shows us our sin. It doesn't justify us. And so we're often kind of prone to pushing God's law aside. Rules, commandments, statutes, don't talk to me about those. Give me the promises of God. Give me the promises of Jesus. What has God done for me? But see, if we just skirt around the law, if we bypass it, something else will take its place, right? It's never a question of whether or not we can have a law. It's always a question of whose law will we have. And so when God brought his people out of Egypt, he gave them a good law. The people rejoiced to receive God's law. In fact, they rejoiced so much that they were afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They received the law there at Mount Sinai, and every year they celebrated the giving of the law at a festival called Pentecost. Lawless communities are impossible. They don't hold together. And so while we gladly and freely admit that the law was not given to justify us, we also rejoice that God gives us his good laws. Here's the way Moses said it to the people in Deuteronomy. He said this, keep God's law and do it, for it will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear of all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? Now, if that's what Moses could say about the law from Sinai, how much better do you have it? How much better do Christians have it? That we don't just have the Ten Commandments of old, we don't just have the revelation from Sinai, but we have Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I make all of this point and I go to all these lengths just to kind of get around that Lutheran allergy. I want to cure you of that allergy to God's law because here's the thing. If we jettison God's law, if all we do is talk about the promises of God, you know what will happen? Some other law will come in. It's never a question of whether or not there will be a law. There will always be a law. The question is, whose law will we have? Whose law will we have in our homes? Whose law will we have in our churches? Whose law will we have in our nation? If it's not the Lord God's, it will be some other substitute. And the substitute, the substitute can never, can never imitate the real thing. So the Sermon on the Mount, right, these words of Jesus that we have heard today is our law. It is our wisdom. It is our understanding. And if we want everyone else to have this wisdom and understanding, we have to get it ourselves first, right? It's no good for us to point out all of the problems in the world around us, and we do this, right? We lament it. We see the lawlessness, the, the, the lack of um, any wisdom and understanding in our nation, and we think if only they had what we had, but they're never going to listen to us if we don't follow God's rules, right? It's kind of like the parent who says, don't do what I say, just do what I do, or I'm sorry, don't do what I do, just do what I say. Parent, kids will never listen to those parents, will they? They'll always imitate them. And so if we as Christians, if we as a church want to renew the world around us, we have to start by the renewal of our own hearts. We must gain the wisdom and understanding ourselves before we make it go out into the world around us. This is why Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount. There we have Jesus laying out his agenda for the true Israel his church. He lays out his agenda over and against, maybe we should put it this way, over and above the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had an agenda too. They wanted the Lord to come in and, you know, bring them out from being under the thumb of the Romans. And they supposed that the way to get there was by being really pure. That's what the Pharisees were all about, purity. They wanted to impose all kinds of extras, all kinds of hedges around God's law, additions to God's law. And what happened, right, what happened to the Pharisees is that by paying all attention to the additions, by paying all the attention to the other traditions, they lost sight of the real thing. Jesus comes and he says, don't follow their agenda. Don't do what they do. Do what I say. Do what I do. My teaching, my law, is the real righteousness. Here is the real agenda. Here is the real law and the real rule for the true Israel. And so we have to begin here with this conviction that the law of Jesus, his revelation, will be our wisdom and our understanding. 
It won't justify you, right? You're not going to keep Jesus' law perfectly. But it has to be your wisdom and your understanding. It has to be the baseline. It has to be the rule that everything else is submitted to. Otherwise, otherwise we will have all kinds of poor substitutes. And here's the strange thing, right? If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, do you, do you know what will happen? You're going to read through it this afternoon in Matthew chapter 5, and you're going to say, you know, all the things Jesus addresses, those are all the problems in the world around us. Anger, hypersexuality, lust, lies, and misinformation. This is all the stuff that the world around us talks about, but they have no way of actually solving Jesus gives his law so that we can live as a community who are free from those things. Jesus gives us his good law so that those things, anger and violence, lust and all of the sexual perversions that come out of that, lying and false information, that those things could be curbed. And instead of those things ruling over us, he wants his wisdom and his understanding to guide us. And so let's just take what Jesus says today about murder, about anger. Let's just take that as our starting point, because if we try to do everything all at once, we'll all be overloaded. I'll be overwhelmed as a preacher, and you'll go home saying, that was just too much, right? He spoke for too long. So just look at where Jesus starts today. Jesus aims, takes aim, first and foremost, at this command, you shall not murder. Now, we can gladly and quite willingly say, that's a good command, right? We shouldn't murder, should we? Everyone knows that. But Jesus goes on to deepen that teaching, to kind of expand it out, to show the true depth of what that commandment requires. No community, whether we're talking about a household, a congregation, or a nation, is going to exist where there's the threat or it's not going to flourish, I should say, where there's the threat of violence breaking out. So Jesus says, where does that violence come from? You have heard it said, you shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, murder begins in the heart with anger. And what could be more common than anger? Have any of you been angry this past week? I have been. Are any of you angry? Do you feel yourself full of indignation all the time? Maybe not all the time. But you turn on the news, you read the newspaper, you look at the world around you, you maybe look at your own family and the state of the church, and you can't help it, can you, but to be upset by things. In fact, I don't even think it's wrong to be angry. Jesus himself was angry quite often. When we encounter some kind of an injustice, if we are not perturbed by it, if we are not upset by it, something's wrong with us. If we are willing to just accept that things aren't as they should be, that's a sign that something's wrong. But what Jesus is addressing is when that anger, that initial reaction to some kind of a problem, an injustice, gets out of control. When that anger leads to insult, leads to you fool, leads to the next thing, when those words start flowing out of our mouths, the next thing that happens is that our hands follow and our feet follow. 
And so anger and angry thoughts and angry words lead to angry actions. And before long, before long, a whole community can be ripped apart by anger. Maybe you've seen that in your own household. Maybe you've seen that happen in a church. It can happen in the church. Maybe you see that and you feel that happening in the nation all around you. Jesus points these things out to say, here is a common threat to any form of community. You have to be aware that this is a threat so that you can cut it off at its starting point. Jesus points these things out certainly to convict us of our sins, certainly to convict us not of righteous indignation, but of the unrighteous kind, you know, the flying off the handle kind of anger. You know what I mean when I say that, that kind of anger that boils up like a volcano within us, and afterwards you look back and you say, man, I was insane. (laughs) Anger is like that, isn't it? It gets out of control really quickly. And so Jesus gives us his wisdom, he gives us his law on dealing with anger. And it's not the way that we would expect, is it? See, what I would expect is that Jesus would say something like this. When you get angry, you go to the person who made you angry and you deal with that person. Now, Jesus will give teaching about that. What should you do when your brother sins against you, when your sister sins against you? Jesus will talk about that later. But as a wise man once said, before you deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye, what do you have to do? Deal with the beam in your own eye first. And so what does Jesus say? He says, if you remember that someone has something against you, Before you go looking around at the sources of your anger in other people, consider how you have been a source of anger in someone else's life. If you are worshiping and there you remember that you have, that your brother has something against you, you go and settle things with your brother first. Then come and offer to God your sacrifices. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's turning things upside down. Our Lord so often does this. His kingdom turns everything upside down. Instead of saying, you know, what has everyone else done against me? I have to start with myself. Where have I been a cause of problem for someone else? And when you go, Jesus says, settle with your accuser before you get to court. Settle with your accuser, which means Pay the cost, right? Pay the price. And it always costs something, right, to settle things with those who have something against us. It may be as simple as paying the price of saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have neglected this. I shouldn't have looked over that. Jesus says, if we want to root out this violence, if we want to root out this anger, Before we go out looking to solve other people's problems, start with yourself. If you are worshiping and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you take the first step. You go to them and say, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Now just imagine, right? Just imagine a house or a church or a nation where that kind of a rule is what guides our actions. How different would it be than the houses and the churches and the nation that we live in right now? 
How different would it be if the law of Jesus were to guide our thoughts and our actions and our life? You know what that kind of a community would look like? You know what that kind of household, that kind of church, that kind of nation would look like? It would look like a place where reconciliation, where reconciliation rules over anger. And that is precisely the kind of thing that Jesus has brought about. Right? What did Jesus say? Whoever does these things and teaches them will be great in the kingdom. Well, he is the one who does this reconciliation. He is the one who accomplishes this reconciliation. He is the one who pays with the price of his own blood what we deserve. He is the one who reconciles us back to the heavenly father. And so we are the ones who follow after him. This is what the law of Jesus always does for us. It shows us certainly our sins. It convicts us where we have gone wrong. It leads us to repentance, but it also shows us, it describes for us what our Lord Jesus has done for us first, and it calls us to follow after him. So let the law of Jesus, this law that rules over violence, that rules over anger, that rules over hatred, and replaces all those things with repentance and forgiveness. Let that law rule in your heart, in your mind. Let that law rule in your home. Let that law rule here in this congregation. And then let's see how it might spill over into the world around us. Because this is always the way it goes as it goes with Christ's Christians, then it will go in the world around us. When they see how we love one another, then they will say, I want to be part of that. Or how was it that Moses said it? This will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, the nations around you. When they hear these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. May Christ work this in us more and more until he comes again. To him be the glory now and always. Amen.